What's up, Northside Church? Are you doing well? You guys got to sleep in? That had to be nice. We were all up here early praying for you guys. So welcome to church. It's good to be in South Carolina. It's my first time being here. And even better, it's good to be in a room full of ravenous Seahawks fans. Am I right? Oh, I got booed early. <laughs> I'm live streaming on my Instagram right now. So, hey, Seahawks fans, pray for me. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Pastor John, thank you for having me. We had a great time this morning, and uh, it's just an honor to be here. Uh, again, my name's Clint Gresham. I spent six years with the Seattle Seahawks. I say that it was six years longer than I expected to. Every day I'd walk in thinking, like, are you guys sure? Keep tricking these guys. My wife and I, we've been married for four years. We have our five-year wedding anniversary coming up. She's watching right now. What's up, babe? You're the best. Been married for four years, almost five. We have two kids. I think I got some pictures of my wife. There's my sweet wife and my precious daughter, Zoe. She's amazing. She's 18 months old. And my dear son, Bear. We had to make Bear his own Instagram account because uh, we were posting too many pictures of him. And so being a dad is the best. I'm so proud as a father. My daughter, she's sleeping through the night. That's a win. Can I get an amen? And my son is not pooping on the carpet? Come on, somebody. This is a reason to praise. <laughs> and uh, I've also got some really good news, too. So for many of you out there who are parents, you understand that your child's first words are very, very important. It's a very excited moment. And uh, my daughter, her first words was mama, which is obviously is the right answer. <laughs> and I'm glad it was because I was afraid it might have been a cuss word because she was around me when the Patriots won more Super Bowls. And if you didn't get that joke I just said, then you'll get it by the end of this message. <laughs> Run the ball. Give it to Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> you'll get it. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, hey, I've, uh, I've, I wrote a book called Becoming, Loving the Process to Wholeness. I wrote it a couple of years ago. And the reason that I chose that word becoming is because that word is both an adjective and a verb. Uh, we are all becoming something, but to be becoming is to be attractive. And so what does it look like to like who you are when you haven't become the person you feel like you're supposed to be? Sort of this aspirational pursuit of enjoying the moment, trusting that if I just embrace the moment, whatever the outcome is, is going to take care of itself. And you know what? That book was so good that Michelle Obama, a year later, also wrote a book called Becoming. She totally ripped off my book title. I couldn't believe it. Uh, but one thing that she did, because she must have heard about me, is that she actually sent out a couple of prints of, of this copy. I pray that that is seared in your memory. <laughs> what a horrible, horrible picture. <laughs> My wife is a pro at Photoshop, and so we had a blast with that. It's so funny. Um, you can please change that. That's terrible. Um, I've also got some stuff in the back. This is called iTalk. They're biblically-based affirmations to train your self-talk. We have between 50,000 and 80,000 thoughts a day, and 80% of those thoughts are negative, which is a terrible way to live. And so on one side is an affirmation, and then the other side is the scripture that supports that truth. And so it's just a really practical way to get the principles of the word into your heart. And so uh, here, you can have this one. Anybody want a book? All right, you raise your hands first. Oh. 
It's okay. We'll practice that later. So today, uh, my message is called Finding the Bottom at the Top. Finding the Bottom at the Top. And I want to start with uh, a poem that I wrote, which because when you wear hats like this, you write poems and talk about how good coffee is and you'd be a snob. I'm not a coffee snob. And I'm not much of a poet, but um, when I was preparing for this message, I just felt like this was uh, an interesting take on this idea of finding the bottom at the top. And what is it that drives us to want to accomplish? And when I finally accomplish it, is it going to make me happy the way that I thought it would? And so it goes like this. I was hurt. It made me feel small. But success made me look big. But looking big doesn't heal feeling small. So God took my big hurt and he made it small. And now I feel big and success doesn't keep me small. I'm finally free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. I pray that you would apply the word to our lives. Show us what it means to embrace the struggles in our lives so that we can become more like you. Amen. Amen. So uh, when I was playing for the Seahawks, our head coach was Pete Carroll. And um, I have wanted to play for Pete Carroll since I was like 15 years old. I was a huge fan of Pete Carroll. Actually, this is just a quick story. Uh, when I was in high school, I begged my dad to send my highlight film to USC because I wanted to go play there. And a, a few weeks later, my dad came up to me. He was like, you know what? I never heard back from those guys. Yeah, so I, I don't know what happened. And so I, I moved on. In 2011, my dear father confessed in our Christmas card that he sends out to hundreds of people that he forgot to send it to USC because he didn't want me to go all the way to California from Texas. Thanks for messing up my life, Dad. <laughs> I'm kidding. It worked out. So our head coach, he's just a guy that I've had such respect for. And um, one thing that he talks about all the time is this idea of focusing on the process, focusing on the process instead of the outcomes. Because if you focus on the outcome, then you're constantly going to be up and down. But if you focus on the things that get you to the outcome that you want, no matter what the outcome is, your work ethic, your drive, your contentment, your sense of joy and happiness and peace are going to remain the same so that when you finally get the thing you want, you're already satisfied. You were satisfied before because your focus wasn't on the outcome. And he marked me so much that I actually made that the subtitle of my book, Loving the Process to Wholeness. And so how I define wholeness is giving up hope for a better past, relinquishing control, control for a perfect future, and then choosing joy and courage right where your feet are, right in this present moment. It would be a profound way to live, to be so caught up in the moment, to be so caught up when in whatever we feel like God has called us to do, that no matter what happens in our lives, I know that I can just continue to focus on this and things are going to work out. In Mark chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today, you have your Bible, you can turn to that. If you don't, it doesn't matter because I'm going to read it anyways. And this is what it says. And Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Say withered hand. Withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that the Pharisees might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. 
And then he said to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when Jesus had looked around at the Pharisees with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. I want to start this morning with a story and this idea of focusing on the process and how we can have these moments in our lives that hurt us, that we feel pain about, that we feel ashamed of, much like the way that this guy with the withered hand, he probably felt a little bit ashamed being that everyone in church is talking about his disability. And a few years ago, I, uh, I was speaking at this sales event, and there was a ton of people there. There was like 1,500 people there. And so I come out onto the stage, I have my moment where I share a couple of things, and then I walk off stage. And I didn't realize this, but there were actually some other NFL players who were at this thing. And so the guy who was coordinating this whole thing, he's like, hey, we're all going to go to dinner afterwards. Why don't you come with us? And I'm like, hey, great. I'm a young guy, and I love free food. Let's do this thing. And so we go to this restaurant, and uh, the host, he says, says to us as we walk in, he's like, oh, you guys come in the back. We've got this back secret room for you guys where it's just going to be amazing. We just wanted to give you guys some privacy. And I'm like, privacy? is like, what is that about? So I go walking back into this room, and I see the other NFL players who are in this thing. And I walk in, and it's Colt McCoy, Sam Bradford, some joker named Drew Brees, and this guy named Jason Witten, and me, <laughs> the long snapper. And I'm like, oh, hey, guys, cool. Let's talk. <laughs> I felt so, like, overwhelmed by this whole thing. And so I go and I sit down and we're kind of having this moment. And inevitably, we start talking shop, you know, start talking about work, talking about football. And uh, all these guys are talking. And so Jason says to Drew, and obviously I'm on a first-name basis with these guys because they know who I am. <laughs> Not really. Jason says to Drew, he's like telling him about this game that they were playing. He's like, man, we were on the one-yard line, and the defense, they come out, and they run a sawdog blitz on us. And everyone at the table is like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? You guys are idiots. Why would they do that? And I'm, I'm over in the corner like, Haha, totally. That's crazy. I don't know what that is. Because, like, I'm the long snapper, and so when it comes to, like, football IQ, I'm still trying to figure out what this whole first down thing is about in foot game, you know, whatever it is. And so I lean over to this guy that's next to me, and I just was like, hey, what's a sawdog blitz? And Jason saw that I did that, and he kind of gave me, like, one of these side-eye scowls that screams, why are you here? Who invited you? And it's like, oh my gosh, I feel so ashamed. I feel so small. I feel so embarrassed. Because that's what happens when you say something dumb and then you just want to punch yourself in the face. <laughs> and I think about that moment a lot, about how, you know, all of us, we want to belong. We want to be a part of the joke. We were created for connection and for community, which means that on the opposite side of that is this idea that we can be hurt we can feel rejected. We can feel left out. And what we do with that hurt and that pain, whether it's from rejection, somebody letting us down, or whatever it is, losing somebody, 
will determine the kind of people that we become. You know, all of us have these pains in our lives, these things that have hurt us or wounded us, and we can end up turning to all of these things to medicate these things so that we don't feel it. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about it. And so we pursue wholeness, the sense of contentment and joy through all of these avenues that promise us this temporary sense of peace, but they really never satisfy us. And so this pursuit of wholeness can actually become like a drug for us. Feeling good for a moment, but you always need more. You always need more. And for me, that pursuit was getting to the NFL, winning a Super Bowl, getting to the top. Once I get there, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to have joy. I'm never going to feel insecure, ever. I'm never going to want people to think I'm great. But it doesn't do that because it was never designed to. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, winning a Super Bowl was amazing. I got to go to two of them, and it was a crazy, incredible experience. Whenever we first got to our hotel rooms uh, in New York and also in Arizona, whenever I was in Super Bowl 48 and 49, when you walked into your hotel room, there were these big Nike duffel bags. They were probably, like, this big. I mean, they were huge. And they had, like, $2,000 worth of Nike stuff in it. Like, it was crazy. As I was running onto the field right after the national anthem, I got to give Queen Latifah a high five. What's up, Queen? Your Majesty? I got to hang out with Macklemore on media day. I got interviewed by the guy who does all of the voices on The Simpsons, which is like, I grew up on this show. Like, this is amazing. Rain Wilson, who is the character Dwight from The Office. Do you guys know The Office? Some people know The Office. Okay, well, you should all go watch The Office because it's like the best TV show ever. There is a video of me playing football with his son on his phone. Like, it's just this crazy, crazy experience. And it was also like the most stressful week of my life <laughs> because it's like, oh, okay, we're about to play football in front of 100 million people. Okay, I'm going to try and not mess up and look like a fool here. So winning the Super Bowl was amazing, but it didn't make me feel whole. It didn't make me feel content. And one of the craziest moments that I can remember about the Super Bowl was for about a year, all of us, myself, the guys that I played with, some of our coaches, we kept saying to each other, I keep waiting for it to sink in that we won the Super Bowl. I keep waiting for it to sink in. And what I realized that all of us meant by that was not that I keep waiting for it to sink in, but I keep waiting for it to make me happy the way that I thought it would. And now it hasn't. And now I'm actually pretty freaked out because I have pursued this thing for 25 years. And now I got it. And having a Super Bowl ring wasn't enough because it was never designed to. So point number one, nothing else works. Nothing else works. Our brain's job is to keep us alive and to avoid threats, which means that it's constantly looking for the path of least resistance to get our needs met. And so when we have something that hurts, we want it to stop hurting. And so we go and we look to something to make us feel better for a moment, to make us feel happy for a moment. 
But the problem is, is that none of those things are usually good for us most of the time. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. You know, idolatry is anything that we spend time doing that is separate from God, that gives us a sense of comfort, of peace, of pleasure, all of these things that like, oh man, okay, I just feel a little bit of relief. But then you need more, and you need more, and you need more. And as you pursue those things apart from God, you find yourself in this place of addiction, denying the place of hurt in your life that is the fuel that is causing you to turn to all of these things. I wrote about seven different types of idols, but I don't have time for all seven of them, so I'm just going to share with you a couple of them that I thought were pretty interesting. The first one is status and fame. The social status of, I want you guys to think that I'm important. Everybody wants to matter. I found this article online, and it's a, it was a wiki page, and it was 10 steps to becoming famous. And it had like 500,000 shares on it. And like, that's so crazy, you know? And in the social media world where it's like the number of followers you have is equivalent to how important you are, how much you matter, is so bizarre. And it's like, it's not like Jesus died harder for other people. It's like the price was the same because the value is the same. Nobody is more important than anybody else just because of what you do. But we want that. We want this status. We want this sense of like, oh yeah, like I, I mean something. One thing that I thought was interesting is that when I was playing football, that you know, a lot of these guys that I played with, you know, they came from a home where there wasn't a dad around. There wasn't somebody who was speaking identity, speaking unconditional love, saying, you matter, you're important, I love you, I'm for you, I'm so proud of you. The role of a father, that's what fathers are supposed to do. And so football, in a sense, becomes a father because it gives you love. People are praising you, telling you how amazing you are, and it gives you identity, makes you feel important. From the time many of these guys are five years old. And so you got to imagine that for most of these guys, everywhere they went, they were literally the best football player around. So you go up to a 10-year-old kid and you're like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Like, for a kid that isn't hearing that anywhere else, can you imagine what that does? It's a drug. It's exactly what it is. All this dopamine is exploding in this little child's brain, and it's telling this child that the only reason you're important is because you play football or whatever sport you're playing or whatever it is that you're good at. And so fast forward, every NFL player becomes a former NFL player, right? So when one of these guys gets cut, it isn't that I lost my job. Football's my dad. It's my dad doesn't want me anymore. Now that's heavy, man. That's heavy. And so no wonder most guys who leave the NFL have a whole lot of problems. It's because we've, we have looked to something other than God for our sense of worth, our identity. And even for myself, as somebody who loved God and believed in God, like when I got cut, it's like, Man, it's inevitable for us to put our sense of worth in the thing that makes us feel the most significant. But if we allow that to happen, it's going to set us up for a fall. 
if we allow ourselves to pursue that instead of dealing with the things that make us feel inadequate, then we're never going to truly feel content with what we have. The second one is your favorite sports team. This is such an idol. Oh, my goodness. If you go to a football game or a basketball game, it is a modern-day worship service. It absolutely is, and I'll prove it to you. When you look in the Old Testament and you would see people getting ready for war, this is what they would do, is they would pick a mascot. They would pick something that represented their strength, like maybe a bear, Chicago, or maybe a panther, North Carolina, or maybe a gamecock right down the street. They would pick a mascot. Then they would paint their faces. They would make flags. They would put on clothes that represented their mascot, like a jersey. Does this sound familiar? It's the exact same thing. And now sports are great, but they're terrible religions. Like when we won the Super Bowl, it united our entire city. Like it was a bizarre experience. We, on Wednesday, we had our Super Bowl parade, and there was 1.2 million people, something like that, in downtown Seattle as we're like driving down the street. The entire state was shut down. It was crazy. But whenever you lose, it's like if you go to a Raiders game and they lose or a Giants game and they lose, oh my gosh, they hate you. They hate you. Because it isn't that we lost, it's God just died. <laughs> And that's a scary thing when you're tying your sense of worth to something that is, it really can't satisfy you. Jonathan Edwards, he said that anything that you idolize, you will demonize, which is so, so true. As soon as it lets you down, you're going to be mad. And I'll give you an example in my life. My second to the last football game that I played in with the Seahawks it was, a, it was a wild card playoff game. It was in Minnesota. We were playing the Vikings, and we were playing outside because their new stadium hadn't been built yet, and it was the third coldest game in NFL history. I think it was minus 6 degrees, and the wind chill was something like minus 23 degrees or something like that. It was so cold. Literally, as I would breathe, the moisture in my breath was freezing my eyelashes together. Like... I'm from South Texas. Like, I don't get this. I have no experience with this. And so we're driving the football, and we end up getting stopped. And so fourth down comes along. And so they call for the long snapper and the punter, and we go running out onto the field. And I remember I run out onto the field, and I grab the football, and it feels like an ice, an ice cube. Like, I literally can't even feel my hands. It is so, so cold. It just feels like a block of ice. I totally get why Tom Brady deflated those footballs, because they're hard to hold when it's cold. I totally get it. I should have done it. Maybe it would have made this not happen. <laughs> so I lean down, and I snap the football. I can't feel it. It's literally the worst snap I have ever had in my life, even when I didn't know how to long snap. This was still worse than that. And the ball, it slipped out of my hands, and I'm supposed to snap the football at 0.7 seconds at 15 yards on our punter's right hip. That's, that's my job, and I could do that every single time. This time, it sort of like dribbled off my hands and landed like eight yards behind me, like somewhere over there, and I basically turned our punter into a shortstop. And so he goes and he scoops up the football, and if he would have just run like to the right, 
it, he would have bailed me out. But he ended up, I mean, I didn't make it easy for him, so it's my fault. But he ran forward, and he got tackled. And I remember thinking to myself, shoot, that wasn't good. <laughs> and I look to the sidelines, and I see our whole team, and they're just like, we hate you. <laughs> it was so humiliating. Like, I joke about it, about it now, but it was one of the worst moments of my life. It really, really was. And I remember getting online after that, and I had hundreds of messages of people just like, you are the worst. You're so bad. You don't deserve to live. You're the worst person in the world. Like, like worse than Hitler? Like, really? <laughs> the worst person in the world? Like, that's ridiculous. Go, go get a hobby or something, man. But that's the nature of idols. That's the nature of when we look to something to try to get this ache in our heart met and it doesn't make us happy, we will destroy that thing. So what is it that you're using to medicate your pain? What is it that you're striving for, thinking that once I get it, I'm going to be happy? Are you believing this fantasy that once I arrive here, then all of my problems are going to go away? And the truth is, is that they won't. Because they were never designed to. But it can start today. Learning to be content with what you have. And so point number two is the courage to embrace our pain preserves us for the reward. The courage to embrace our pain preserves us for when we get the thing that we are striving for. When you look at the story in Mark chapter 3 of this man who has his withered hand... I always like to put myself into the stories in my mind. And this guy, he's got a disability. And there's a good chance that because he's in church and everyone in the room is talking about it, that he probably feels a little insecure, probably feels a little bit ashamed. I know I would. When I was in high school, I had terrible acne. And every time I walked into a room, I just thought people thought I was like this hideous monster. I was so in my head about it. This guy probably felt like that a little bit too. And so there's this moment where Jesus walks up to this guy who has this disability, and he says to this guy, stretch out your hand. Now, if I'm that guy, I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> that's super offensive, Jesus. <laughs> stretch out my hand? Like, I literally cannot do that. I've got this flipper stuck to the side of my body and you're asking me to stretch it out in front of all these people? Are you making fun of me? But the Bible says that he took his withered hand, this thing that he felt ashamed of, and he stretched it out. And in a moment, bloop, the Bible says it got restored as whole as the other. He was brought back to a place of wholeness when he took this thing that caused him so much pain, caused him so much shame, and he brought it out into the light and showed it to other people. You know, all of us have a withered hand in some capacity, something that hurts, something that we feel ashamed of, and it can be so, so scary to live a life of vulnerability and real intimacy when we really let people see the things that we feel embarrassed about or ashamed about. But the truth is, is that until you start to do that, 
And still you, until you have the courage to have real, authentic relationships with people instead of faking it, saying like, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm all good, and we're all secretly dying, until you do that, you're always going to be living in isolation. So we have to walk in courage. A couple of years ago, um, my wife and I, we were in Salt Lake City, and I was training at this gym out there. And uh, they have this state park out there that has the largest bison population in the United States. There's tons of them out there. And so we just decided we're going to go out to this place and check it out and see what it's like. And so we drive to this state park, and I remember we drive up this hill, and we get to the top of this hill, and then we look out over this pasture, and there's tons of these things. And they're just walking around, and it's this amazing, amazing sight. And I got so fascinated with these animals. They're so huge and strong, and there's not many of them in the United States anymore. There used to be millions of them, and now there's like four. <laughs> and they were all at this state park. And so I started doing some research about them, and I found out something that is really, really fascinating. If you have a pasture, and there's a bison in it, and there's also a cow in it, both of those animals sort of look alike, right? Like, it, it's like the stronger big brother of, of the cow, you know? They sort of look alike. But if they're in the same pasture, and a storm starts to roll in with thunder and lightning and hail and tornadoes and all kinds of crazy stuff, a cow will actually look at that, and it will start to go the other direction. Basically trying to, like, outrun the storm. The problem is, is because it's going the same direction as the storm, it just sort of stays in the problem. You know, I think some of us, maybe we've got some problems that don't seem to go away. Could be because we're running. A bison, on the other hand will look at that storm, and it will actually head towards it, which is very, very interesting. And because it's heading towards it, it spends less time in it. Because it's like, because it has the courage to go towards it instead of running away from it, it gets stronger. Because, you know, who we want to be always seems to be on the other side of the thing that we least want to address. Am I right? That's the person that we want to be when we choose courage over fear. I, uh, I made these bracelets a few years ago, and they've got all these bison on them facing different directions because I, I wanted to remind myself that no matter where a problem comes in my life, I, I want to confront it. Because whenever I run from my problems, all it does is make me feel more ashamed. It makes me feel more like a coward. But when I choose to go at them and do the hard thing, that's when I find this sense of contentment and peace. One of you guys can have that. Oh, she wasn't paying attention. Uh, <laughs> when you look at James chapter 1, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I hate that Bible verse. <laughs> that Bible verse is so easy to quote for other people. Oh, you're going through a trial? Count it all joy, brother. My life's easy, but yours, that seems bad. <laughs> it's like, why does God want us to count it all joy? It's because he knows what's on the other side of our trials. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things for our good. Good or bad, God is going to work it out for your good. And God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent in his power 
because he knows that the only way that he is going to heal your heart and make you strong is to allow you to struggle in some things. So are you disciplined enough to trust God's character when you're in the middle of something that's really hard and really, really painful? In Psalm 23, King David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the reason that he didn't fear any evil is because he chose to keep walking. I walked through it. I didn't sit and loiter in my pain. Because all that does is make us feel less strong. We have to make that decision to not choose this victim mentality that may feel good for a moment, but it really doesn't make us better people. Feeling like a victim makes you feel like, oh man, people care about me, people, people are paying attention to me, and sometimes that can be a drug in itself because we don't have this revelation inside of us about how much God cares for us. So we have to do all of these things and be passive-aggressive trying to get people to be like, oh, I'm sorry, like I'm here for you. And we need to step into our courage. When we lost Super Bowl 49, and this is why I hate the Patriots, get her out of here. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being serious. <laughs> when we lost that game, we're on the one-yard line, okay? We are literally this far away from winning back-to-back -back Super Bowls, of becoming a dynasty. I believe that if we would have won that game, we would have become a dynasty because right after that, our team started to sort of get division and our team really wasn't the same after that. And we throw the ball, it gets picked off in the end zone, we end up losing the game. And I go into the locker room afterwards and it's a very, very tense moment as you can imagine. Some guys are very angry. Some guys are saying some bad words. Some guys are crying. We're all processing this sense of pain and defeat and anger. And so our head coach, he says a couple of words to the team, and then he looks at me and he says, okay, Gresh, go ahead and pray for us now. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I should have prepared something. <laughs> What on earth can I possibly say right now that's going to make this moment not feel terrible? I don't know. God, curse the Patriots. May they never win another Super Bowl. God ignored that prayer. Dang it. You got one job, Jesus. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> and what I realized I was doing in that moment was like, I'm trying to say something that's going to make people not feel any pain. I'm trying to add here a reason to escape this discomfort that we're all feeling. And the truth is, is that we need to actually just be okay with it. Not try to numb these things in our lives. And it takes great, great courage to welcome that kind of discomfort. Because if we run from that kind of discomfort, that's when we start turning to all of these different idols that give us this temporary sense of peace. Once I get this, then I'm going to be good. We pursue success and conquering things, and it's never, never enough. And so we have to have the courage to go into those places in our lives that we don't want to talk about. And here's the thing about courage. You should write this down. Courage feels like fear. Courage is a decision, and it feels like fear. So 
When you start to feel afraid about something you know that you're supposed to do, and you feel this in your heart, your heart starts beating, thinking to yourself, that's my courage. That's, that's exactly what that is. Because everything you need is already inside of you. When we invite God into our life, he comes and he fills you with the Holy Spirit, and now you have everything that you need. And so we go to God and say, God, give me strength to do the right thing. God gives you strength. You don't feel like it. That's why we have to walk in faith. God gives you strength, but you still have to decide to do the right thing. So you have the strength that you need to do the more difficult right instead of the easier wrong. But if we keep turning away from it, if we keep isolating ourselves, then we're never going to fully become the people that we want to be. And so point number three, God gives us what we need, but we still have to use it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 through 20 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that both you and your descendants may live. It's like, God, I don't want to choose life. Because I like it whenever people feel bad for me. No, 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 no. God's saying that you actually have the power to decide. You can choose if you're going to walk in courage, if you're going to walk in fear. And one of the most painful things that I've realized is that ultimately it is my decision about the kind of person that I'm going to become. It is my decision whether or not I'm going to become strong or continue to stay a victim. And I'm not, min I'm not minimizing whatever pain that you've gone through. I'm really, really not. I'm sure in a room this size there are people who have been through some really terrible things. What I am doing is that I am maximizing the strength that is inside you and in saying that you can do a whole lot more than you think you can. You are so much stronger than you think you are. But we get these distortions in our mind and we start to believe things that aren't true. We start to believe things that were spoken over us that were not true and didn't line up with what God has to say about us. You are so, so strong. And all you have to do is continue to choose the more difficult right because it will continue to build that thing because courage is a muscle. And we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's where we grow. You know, science actually says that you have as much willpower as you think you do, which is really interesting to me. And that the Bible actually says that. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So if you believe that your situation is refining you and growing you and making you strong, then it will. But if you think that it's this life sentence to depression and defeat and death, we will get caught up in that cycle, constantly looking to other things, never fully experiencing that sense of contentment because anything apart from God won't give us that. And we have to have the courage to let God into these places in our heart that have been hurt, that have been wounded, because it is only when we allow those things to become healed and whole that we become the full measure of who we want to be. And so when we get that thing that we're chasing, whatever it is that we want to accomplish in our life, a career or a family, whatever it is, once we get that, we will already have been content. 
and the manifestation of the thing that we want so, so bad won't be the thing that determines whether or not how much joy we have. Does that make sense? Because we already have the joy because we're focusing on what God has called us to do. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And um, you guys remember the story of David and Goliath. David, he's going out to fight Goliath, this huge dude. And so he goes out to his riverbed and he picks up five smooth stones. And so we go out to this place in Israel that was believed that David fought Goliath. And we were at this riverbed. And it was dry during this time of year. And I thought it was so interesting is that as I walked up to this river, on the edges of the river, on the shore, most of those rocks had a whole bunch of rough edges on them. But as you walked further out into the river, all of the rocks in the middle of the river where the stream was, all of those rocks, their rough edges were rubbed off. Because in the flow of the river, all of those rocks are banging up against each other and knocking off all of these rough edges. And so when David walks out into the riverbed, he passed over rocks that had all of these rough edges to them because he knew that if he would have grabbed one of these rocks that had a rough edge to it, when he threw it, he wouldn't be able to trust that it would accomplish its purpose of hitting Goliath in the face. It would have veered off, done its own will. So he picked up one who had allowed the pain, in a sense, to become refined. Now, the Bible compares us to living stones. So are we going to stay in the place of pain and allow that to get healed or are we going to retreat to the counterfeit safety of the shore that gives us this temporary sense of peace but it really isn't who we want to be and it takes courage to allow those rough edges in our life to be healed we have to allow God to come and nourish us in those things when I was a kid um, my best friend in the world his name was Weston Wes and I did everything together. He was like a part of my family. I was like a part of his family. I mean, we were tight. And one of my favorite things to do was we would go out to Weston's property, and he had a whole bunch of land, and they had a golf cart out there. And now, when you're like seven years old, and you're on a golf cart flying down the road at three miles an hour, it's like, this is awesome! We had so many fun memories revolving around this golf cart. It was just something that we loved to do together. And I remember one day I'm sitting in our TV room and my mom comes walking in and she has this look on her face that I had never seen before. And I could tell that she had been crying and it scared me. And so my mom starts talking to me and she starts to sort of choke out these words. She says, honey, Weston, he was on the back of the golf cart. And he slipped. And he fell and he hit his head really hard. And there was like this pause for a moment. And then she finally just said as she broke into tears that, honey, Weston has passed away. My best friend. And I remember hearing that and like, 
I have no concept of really what this means. I'd never experienced death like this. It's my first time walking through something like this. And that moment changed something in my life. A year later, my parents got divorced and it created this long, long season of me looking to all of these things to make me feel better inside so that I wouldn't have to feel that pain. That was the catalyst to make me pursue sports or whatever it was because sports made me feel important and I'm gonna work so hard at this and I'm gonna do all this stuff and I got a Super Bowl out of this thing. And then I got the Super Bowl and I got this ring and it didn't make it go away. Because it was never supposed to. Only God does that. But God doesn't leave us in our pain because that's not the kind of person that he is. A few years ago, I was speaking at a friend's church in my hometown in Corpus Christi, Texas. And every time I would go home, I would get really nostalgic. And I'd think like, you know, what life was like growing up. And I would also think a lot about, you know, what would it have been like if Weston didn't pass away? You know, would my family still be together? I, I don't know. And I decided that I was gonna drive over to Weston's grave and just have a moment and reflect. And so I drive to this cemetery. I went to where I thought that he was buried. It'd probably been two decades since I'd been there. And I start looking around and I can't find it. And so I drive over to the office and I ask the lady in the front office, can you tell me where Weston Conley is buried? And she comes out after about 10, 15 minutes, she says, we actually don't have a record of Weston being buried here. And I remember hearing that, and I'm like, that's, that's not right. I know he is. And so I ended up leaving, and I called my mom, and it turns out that they had actually misspelled his name. And so I come back a few days later. I give this lady the correct spelling, and she comes out moments later, and she says, Weston Connolly is buried right here. She gives me this map. So I take this map and I drive over to it and I'm still looking around and I still can't find it. 20 minutes goes by, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And as this is all happening, I see a family kind of pull up and they're having a moment at this gravesite. And I had already been over there because I'm, I'm still looking over here. And you know, when you're at a cemetery, you're trying to give some people some space. And so they're over there for 10 minutes or so and they start to walk back to their car, they get in their car and they start to drive away and my heart starts beating. I'm like, that, I don't know what that was. And so I start walking over to where they were. I start jogging a little bit and I finally get to where they were standing and I look down and it says Weston Conley. And I like melted into the floor. It was like one of the craziest moments. I look down and I'm like, that was Weston's parents. I haven't seen them in probably 20 years. They wouldn't know what I looked like. Like, I, I hadn't seen them. And so I freaked out and I sprinted to my truck as fast as I could. I get into my truck and I pull out onto this road and I can turn right or I can turn left. I have no idea which direction they go. And so I just took a right and I'm going like 80 in this 35 mile an hour zone. And I finally catch up to them and they're parked at this stoplight. And I pull up next to them and I'm thinking like, what do I do now? <laughs> The light turns green, 
going 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour. And I'm like, I better do something. So I roll down my window and I start honking my horn. And the guy who's driving rolls down his window and I shout out the window. I say, are you Weston Conley's parents? Which is probably the first time they had been asked that in a very long time. And this father, he looks at, at me and he's so proud. He says, yes, we are. Weston was our son. And I shout back out the window. I'm like, I'm Clint Gresham. In this moment, the mom leans forward and she screams at the top of her lungs. And we're just like having this moment going 50 miles an hour down the road. This is so dangerous. So we pull over on the side of the road and we jump out of the car and we start hugging each other. And we're like ugly crying like I am right now. And she's hugging my neck and she's like, I feel like I'm holding Weston again. Come to find out that was the first time she had been to Weston's grave in like 10 years. Seeing me brought healing to her life. Seeing them brought healing to my life because God doesn't forget anything. And whatever it is, is the pain that you've gone through that has caused you to look to all of these other things to make you feel okay with yourself. has caused you to pursue all of these things that once I get that, then I'm going to be important. Then I'm going to matter. It won't. It won't fix it. It was never designed to. And so for all of us, whatever it is that you've gone through, whatever your withered hand is, God is inviting you today to bring that out into the open, to be courageous with it, and to face that storm. Because the more that we run from it, the more that we'll find ourselves in the cycle of self-hate, and it never ends well. We have to choose courage. And when that pain was healed in my life, I was content when I got to the top. I stayed grounded when I got to the top. So what do we do? We have to fall in love with the process. Be content with what you have. Face your storms. Let God and people into your pain. And when you win, whatever it is your Super Bowl is, the wisdom that you received and the process to wholeness will cause your joy to remain will be whole and it won't be dependent on what you do because it's dependent on what he did for us and we receive it by faith I was hurt it made me feel small but success made me look big but looking big doesn't heal feeling small so God took my big hurt and he made it small and now I feel big and success doesn't keep me small. I'm finally free. Let's pray.